We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. I'm Leslie Vernick, and today I am so excited to be talking with Nancy Piercy. She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Professor Piercy has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. I had the pleasure of getting an advanced copy of Nancy's book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and loved it. It's an important read for both men and women. Nancy, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. And so let's just begin with some good news. People often accuse evangelical Christian men of being oppressive, patriarchal bullies prone to abuse. But actually, you make the surprising claim in your book that they test out as having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. Please explain more about that. Yes, I did start with the good news. Leslie, I had that at the end at first because logically you you give the problem and then you give the solution. But people found the problem so depressing. You know, as I went through the history of how the concept of toxic masculinity has developed, um, that was a real downer for many people. And they said, okay, really put the good news first. And so the good news is in spite of the fact that we often hear that evangelical Christian men are like exhibit A, of toxic masculinity. And and by the way, I was able to find plenty of examples. I give lots of quotes of people saying, for example, there's one quote where somebody says um, that she was a co-founder of the Church 2 movement. And she said that conservative gender ideology leads to the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Uh, So even Christian uh, organizations have been saying this. And so sociologists looked at these accusations and said, where's the evidence? You know, give, give us some data. And so the sociologists themselves started doing the studies. And so these are fairly recent, you know, within the last few decades, um, that sociologists have found that, in fact, these accusations are completely wrong, that, in fact, Christian men who go to church regularly, who have authentic, meaningful Christian faith, test out as the best of all groups in America. They test out as the most loving to their wives. And by the way, yes, they do interview the wives separately, which is important. And so what they're really saying is that the wives report the highest level of satisfaction with their husband's expression of love and appreciation. Evangelical men are the most engaged fathers, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, Uh, And in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime, evangelical couples have actually the lowest rates of divorce. And the real stunner is they have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in America. So even Christians don't know this. I had to go digging in the academic sociological journals to find this. It's not out there yet in in the Christian public. 
And so that's one reason, uh, it, probably the main reason I wanted to write this book is I thought this needs to get out. We need to be encouraging Christian men who are, in fact, committed Christians that they are doing well. The, the, the church is largely doing a good job of nurturing Christian men. Men don't respond well to be, calling to, to be called toxic. <laughs> None of us would. So we want to make sure that we're also encouraging and affirming and supporting men when they're doing a good job. And this is rigorous academic empirical data showing that, in fact, evangelical men do very well. But don't we often hear that Christians are divorcing at the same rate as the rest of society? That's the first question I always get, invariably. And in my research, I found out that it is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And so the sociologists went back to the data and they divided Christian men uh, into two groups. So the ones who I mentioned already, the, who actually attend church regularly and have a genuine, authentic Christian commitment over against nominal Christians. My students know, don't know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain. It means in name only. So N-O-M is Latin for name. So nominal Christian men are men who might check the Baptist box on a survey like this, but who actually attend church rarely, if at all. And they test out as shockingly different. They are the, their, their wives report the lowest level of happiness with their husband's treatment of them. They are the least involved with their children. They have a higher level of divorce than secular men. And they have the highest rates of domestic violence, higher than secular men. Wow. So, uh, the, yes, I, you. what happens in, in most research is they put these two groups together, right? If they just look at what are evangelical men like, they will take men who are better than the secular, the surrounding secular culture, and they'll take men who are worse than the surrounding secular culture. You put these together, obviously, you're going to get skewed statistics. And that's what's happened in the past, which is why we don't know about this data. We have two issues we need to face. We need to support the men who are doing a good job, and we need to reach out to men who identify as evangelicals and sort of hang around the fringes of the Christian church, but who are actually worse than secular men in terms of divorce and domestic violence. I get asked a lot, so why is that? Why are they actually worse? And it appears that they, um, you know, they pick up the language of headship and submission and then they think that gives them permission to act out what is, in fact, the secular definition of masculinity. You know, they're, they're not integrated enough into the church to have a biblical definition of those terms. And so they infuse secular definitions of those terms in terms of things like uh, dominance, control and, and entitlement. But they feel even more self-righteous in doing so because they, they think they've gotten permission from the church. Jesus says that we're called Christians by our fruit, not by our words. And so what you're saying is the men who show the fruit of Christianity have the lowest levels of domestic violence and the happiest levels of satisfied wives. And the men who talk the talk but don't walk the walk have actually worse levels of domestic abuse and higher levels of divorce than the secular culture. Yeah, let me give you um, one quote to sort of drive this home. My, my sort of go-to sociologist, the one who did the largest study. I, I quote about a dozen 
different sociologists so, who all say the same thing. But he did the largest study. His name is Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia. And he actually wrote an article in the New York Times. And let me give you his exact words. He says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America. And again, they're looking at the wives because the assumption is that any form of headship leads to you know, uh, abuse and patriarchy and oppression. It turns out that the happiest wives of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. So first of all, I'm surprised the New York Times was willing to print this, <laughs> but it, it's, it's uh, again, it's pressing home the point that and, and through sheer empirical research, they're finding out that Christian men do better. In fact, this sociologist, Brad Wilcox, ends by saying, um, academics need to cast aside their prejudices. So he's talking, of course, to his secular colleagues who are secular academics. Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So this is what we need to get out. We need to help people realize that Christian men who follow the Bible, as you said, as they really live it out, they're doing a much better job. And the secular media, of course, is dumping on Christians all the time. And so is the religious media to some degree. Um, and they don't know, they're out of touch. They're out of touch with the data from the social sciences. Hmm. And so we need to push back with these facts and, you know, help the church to realize, hey, you know, you are doing a good job. Keep, keep it up, you know. It, most people do better, you know, if they know that, if you say to them, you're doing a good job, do better. <laughs> they're more likely to be hmm. open to you. Yeah, Nancy, in your book, you do say, that men are being torn between two competing scripts for masculinity. Even in the church, I think, they're being torn between these scripts. What are these competing scripts that men are torn between? Yes, this was fascinating. Uh, let me start by saying, Leslie, this has turned out to be the most uh, controversial book I've written, <laughs> and which took me by surprise because I really thought my earlier book, which was titled Love Thy Body, would be the most controversial because it deals with abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. In the Christian world, this has proved to be more controversial. So many of my young students, uh, I teach at Houston Christian University, and many of my young female students identify as feminist. And if I said anything positive about men, they would get triggered as though I were thereby denigrating women. Mm -hmm. And my male students were equally defensive. Uh, when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one of the male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So I had to rewrite chapter one multiple times to get over that initial barrier. Oh, and when my students would tell their family and friends that I was, uh, we were going through my manuscript in, in class and I did several reading groups to sort of, you know, rub off the rough edges. And they would tell their family and friends. And the first question invariably was, whose side is she on? 
<laughs> with that tone, you know, whose side is she on? Right? Is she some kind of a raving feminist who's bashing men, or is she an angry reactionary? And so I had to pull both of these audiences in in chapter one, because once they got past that and got into some of the content, like the sociological data we just talked about, then they would say, oh, this is very interesting. But I had to get past that initial barrier. And one of the things I found most helpful was exactly this study that you just referenced, that there are two scripts for masculinity. This is from a sociologist who's not a Christian. He's very well known, and so he speaks all around the world. And so he turned it into a study. He started asking young men two questions from Australia to New Zealand to Ecuador, you know, across the world. And he would start by asking them, what does it mean to be a good man? If you had a funeral and uh, there's a eulogy where somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And all around the world, men had no trouble answering that. Uh, in fact, let me read you their exact uh, response. So you get the exact words, honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. <laughs> I kind of like that one. Be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, be generous. All around the world, people would, men would say this and the sociologists would ask, well, where'd you get that? And they said, well, it's just everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. And if they were in the West, they would say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would ask a follow-up question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say, man up, be a real man? And they would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. And again, I'm going to give you their exact words. It means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. And so these are the two competing scripts that are out there. And the second one, the real man, is what many people refer to as toxic, right? Those are the, the traits that most people think are more harmful. And they're not all bad. I mean, there's times in a crisis you have to stand strong. But if, if they get separated from the moral content of the good man, which they do, they do get decoupled in our secular culture, then they are, in fact, toxic. And so my point in the book is like the main debate is not really so much between men and women. It's within men's own head between these two competing scripts that they, you know, they feel they're made in God's image. <laughs> men are made on God's image. They do know what the good man is. In fact, let me give you one more uh, study. This is shorter. Uh, an anthropologist did the first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity a couple of years ago. And he found that no matter how they differed in their understanding of what manhood means, they all shared the three Ps, what he calls the three Ps, provide, protect, and procreate. In other words, build into the next generation. And he said, this is universal. In all cultures, men are expected to provide, protect, and be good fathers. And so men do know what it means to be a good man. They made it in God's image. Romans 2 says we all know intrinsically what is right or wrong. You know, we, we all have a conscience. But men feel the cultural pressure to live up to the, quote unquote, the real man. And I would say especially so, you know, the more our culture loses Christ, its Christian roots, the more it gives in to an increasingly secularized definition or script for manhood yeah so the real man is 
not necessarily a good man. He's a tough man. He's a strong man. And he's a man who lives for himself and for pleasure, not for any higher ideals. You mentioned in your book that men as a group are falling behind in education, employment, health, and even life expectancy. Why are people ignoring the real problems that men are facing today? Yes, this is the irony, isn't it? It's become so socially acceptable to express hostility to men. And this was another reason I wrote the book, by the way, is I was just taken aback when I read things like, like this. This was in the Washington Post. It had a, an article, it ran an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, what? <laughs> you might express, expect that from some fringe feminist publication, but not a mainstream publication like the Washington Post. A Huffington Post editor said her, um, her New Year's resolution was to kill all men. Hashtag. <laughs> you can buy t-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. Hmm. Books have come out with titles like, I hate men, no good men, and are men necessary? So I was blown away by the sheer hostility that it's become acceptable to express. And even uh, men are jumping on the bandwagon. You may have seen this. It's not in my book because it just came out a, a few weeks ago, but James Cameron was in the news. He's the uh, director of the movie Avatar. And he was out there saying, testosterone is a toxin. You need to work it out of your system. A male author wrote a book where he said, talking about healthy masculinity is, talk is like talking about healthy cancer. Mm. So what I found ironic was what you just raised, which is namely that men are falling behind in a wide range of areas. They're fa falling behind at all levels of education, right? from kindergarten through college. Boys are much more likely to have difficulty in school, uh, to have learning disabilities, to drop out of school. More women than men are now graduating from college, are graduating from graduate school, and even professional schools like law and medicine. Men are more likely to commit suicide, to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, to commit crime and be victims of crime. I used to work for Prison Fellowship, which is an international ministry, and we knew, you know, 90% roughly of all people behind bars are men. And right now, most people don't know this either, but right now, male employment is at depression era levels. And we don't know it because they're no, no longer even looking for work. So they don't, they're not showing up in statistics. You have to do special studies to find them. But male employment is at depression era levels. And then, as you mentioned, their uh, life expectancy has even gone down while women's has stayed the same. So it's not universal. It's just men's life expectancy that has gone down. And so why don't we hear this? You know, our, our men are in trouble today. Christina Hoff Summers wrote one of the first books on this subject. It was called The War on Boys. And she says, well, it's the reason we're not responding to this is because every time you try to, uh, feminist groups jump on you and oppose you uh, because they all say, well, men ultimately come out on top. You know, mm -hmm. they, they end up the CEOs and the presidents and so on. And so we don't need to help boys. Well, that ignores the fact that it's maybe the top 5%, a 10% at the most of men who are in those top positions. And in fact, the majority of men are actually doing worse than they were in the past. And I would say, especially as Christians, we should have, 
we should have compassion for anyone who's having difficulty in society. And right now it is the men. Oh, I'll give you one more, more quote. So this is, this is recent too, so it's not in the book. A survey in Britain came out just a few weeks ago, which found that 55% of men, so more than half, now say that discrimination against men has gotten worse than discrimination against women. Whether or not you agree, that is a lot of people who think that the male bashing has gone too far. Your book says that criticisms of men began much earlier than most of us think. Where did this idea of toxic masculinity come from? Yeah, so you usually find people thinking it's uh, maybe second wave feminism in the 1960s. Actually, no, it starts with the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, men and women, you know, husbands and wives worked side by side all day. And husbands were also working with their children, especially their sons, training them in, in adult skills in the family industry, on the family farm, in the family shop or business. And so the ethos, you know, the cultural expectation on men was much more caretaking. You're responsible for the good of the household. You're responsible to be gentle and loving with your wives and children. A common phrase back then was that you're not only the father of your family, but you are expected to be fathers of the community. You were supposed to bring that caretaking ethos out into the community. And authority also had a very specific meaning back then. It didn't mean you get to do what you want. <laughs> it meant you were responsible for the common good. In other words, you know, individuals all look out for their own good. I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But who's responsible for the common good of, say, the marriage or the common good of the family or the church or the civil society? That's what authority was for. The favorite word back then was disinterested, meaning you don't pursue your own interests. You pursue the interest of the whole. So there was an incredible pressure on men to be responsible for the entire family. And I should say, this is also the colonial period was also the period where most people were Christian. And so it was very much rooted in a Christian understanding of manhood as well. How did we lose that? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. Of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, Men were not working with their families, with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And you begin to see the language change. People begin to complain that men's character was changing. They no longer were operating with this caretaking ethos. Instead, they were looking out for number one, getting ahead, selfish ambition, to use the language of Galatians, selfish ambition egocentric, acquisitive, make more money. A letter to the editor at the time said the, in gaining financial success, the American man is losing his soul. So people back then began already to say men, and it was a protest. You know, they didn't like what they were seeing. And men are becoming much more egocentric, callous, morally hardened, self-centered, and so on. That's when you see the language change. Now, in my book, the toxic war on masculinity, I go through several more stages of the, how the secular script developed, but that's when it started. That's where you see the language change and became, begin to describe the male character more negatively. And you mentioned before, but you know, the rhetoric 
you know, we're always, it's us and them, you and me, it's not us together anymore. It's not the common good anymore. It's factions and trying to cast one group as the villains and one group as the victims. And you mentioned that men are typically these days cast as the villains and women as the victims. Where did these stereotypes come from? That's a good question. And I was just in an interview a few days ago with a young man who was in his 20s. And he said, it's still in the church today. (laughs) He said, the the assumption is that men are more prone to sin and vice. They're more prone to to be on porn, be alcoholics, whatever, and that women have to hold them in check. Well, where did that start? After the Industrial Revolution, they developed a large public square, factories and industry and banks and financial institutions and academia, universities and the, and the state, the government. And in this large public square, people began to say that they should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. In other words, don't bring your private personal values into the public square. Well, that's what we hear today, right? That's when it started. People began to say that the public realm should be completely secular. Well, men were out in the public realm. They were getting public education uh, and, you know, secularized education. They were working in a secularized workplace. And so men began to be more secular and their behavior did grow worse. You know, uh, historians do say that there was a huge rise in drinking, gambling, fighting, prostitution, the number of brothels, mushroomed, public drunkenness, people falling down drunk on the sidewalks became an issue men drinking away all their money and leaving their families destitute and beating their wives because they were drunk. There was a reason that there was a huge growth of reform movements in the 19th century. There's a reason there was a temperance movement. Sometimes it's easier if you have one fact to sort of hang this on. Here's your one fact. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So that was the, that was the peak. (laughs) So there was a reason there was a temperance movement. Um, so th- there was the abolition movement. There were movements to counter prostitution and sex trafficking. There were a huge number of reform movements. Now, the problem with that, is, and those were good, the problem is that they were dr- mostly driven by women. What had happened is that as men became secularized, as values were kicked out of the uh, public arena, where would they be cultivated? <laughs> in the private realm, in the home, in church. Who would cultivate them? Women. Women were essentially set up as the moral guardians of society. And this was also a complete novelty, historically speaking. Women had never before been seen as morally or spiritually superior to men. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that the insight between right and wrong is a rational insight. And they thought men were more rational and therefore men were more moral. They were morally stronger than women. In fact, the word virtue, the root of the word virtue is V-I-R. It's Latin for man. Think of the word virile. So virtue had connotations of male strength and honor. So it was completely new when in the 19th century, people began to say, No, no, no. Women are the ones who are morally superior. And women are now tasked with holding men in check. You know, when men come home from the secular workplace, 
they they come home and their women are supposed to sort of refine and reform them, you know, reinstill their moral and spiritual sense again, and, you know, fortify them for going back out into the dog eat dog world of the industrial workplace. So that's where the tension starts between men and women in terms of setting up women uh, as the ones who are supposed to quote unquote tame men, hold them in check morally. And whereas we kind of gave men a pass. One historian puts it this way. He said, men were being let off the hook. You know, if, if they're no longer held responsible for moral and spiritual leadership, then they're being essentially given a pass. They're allowed to be self-centered, egotistical, you know, pursue their traditional male vices like drinking and prostitution. And then women are tasked with keeping them in check. All of this happened in the 19th century. Uh, my, my point is that the only way we can respond effectively to social trends like this is to know where they came from and how they developed. And so that's why I spend a lot of time in the book saying, where did they come from? How did they develop so that we can respond more effectively today? You know, it's interesting, um, Nancy, that you talk about that. I just had another guest who has written about, you know, women having the burden of keeping a man's sexual proudness in check, like don't dress this way, because if you dress this way, he won't be able to control himself. So somehow we have to control ourselves and them from sexually assaulting us by the way we dress or by the way we talk, or somehow he's not responsible for his porn use. We're responsible for his porn use because we didn't give him enough sex as a wife. And it's still going on even today. And often the woman is blamed for her husband's failure to be a moral man because somehow she wasn't enough or sexual enough or strong enough or spiritual enough or prayed enough or submissive enough, all of that kind of thing. And so it really feeds that system of wrong thinking in both the female and her burden of responsibility and the male and his lack of responsibility and lack of maturity. Exactly. Um, as I mentioned, I go through several stages of the secularization of the masculine script. And at each stage, I show that once again, men are being let off the hook and women are made responsible for them. I'll, I'll give you just one uh, example because it might be the most colorful one. The rise of Darwinism. Darwinian thinkers began to say that men are naturally beasts within. <laughs> you know, up, again, back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it had been thought that men keep their animal instincts in check by the higher standards of morality and spirituality, their higher faculties. There was a complete reversal. Darwinism said, no, 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 your true self, for men, not for women, your true self is the animal within, the beast within. They said things like, men who won out in the struggle for survival were by necessity those who were brutal and harsh and mean and predatory, barbarian and savage. And, so and adulterers, yeah, who multiply <laughs> their offspring in various settings, right? Exactly, exactly. They, they try to get their seed, spread their seed as wide as possible to get their genes into the next generation, which is, by the way, still being said by evolutionary psychologists today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this, it, it did create an ethos which said um, your true self is, is not the self that's connected to family and relationships. Your true self is the guy who's out there you know, climbing mountains and, and hunting elk and, you know, being wild. The Tarzan books, for example, this is when they became very popular. They were popular because they showed a man being raised by the apes. So he's still in touch with his, you know, bestial nature, his natural, 
his natural instincts. And even after he learns European customs, he says to Jane, I'm still a wild beast at heart. And so this was the message supposedly of evolution. And you, you wonder, well, how did women get along with such brutal men? Uh, Herbert Spencer, who was the main popularizer of Darwinism in America said, well, women have to learn the ability to please. And it would also help if they learned how to hide their distress at such bad treatment. So this apparently was the message of evolution, <laughs> that men are naturally brutal beasts and women need to hide their resentment. Darwin himself, by the way, did say that women are inferior, that they're mentally, intellectually inferior to men. And he acknowledged that women was, were more sensitive and intuitive. But he said, those are traits of the lower species. So even women's strengths were, <laughs> were turned into negatives, you know, showing her inferiority. Thomas Huxley, who was known as Darwin's bulldog because he was so adamant in, in promoting Darwinism, wrote that because women's inferiority is a product of natural selection, it cannot be remedied even by educational selection. You know, mm -hmm. Even education can't help women out of their inferior position. So this was clearly a very important input into the secular definition of masculinity and as Christians, if we don't know what the secular definition is, we won't counter it. We're liable to absorb it. You know, we won't have a critical grid up. And so uh, one reason I spend a fair bit of time explaining how the secular script emerged is so that we can think critically about it and make sure that we're not just absorbing it unaware, which, which I, I think you said a minute ago, we are. Yes, I think a lot of Christian men do absorb it because they don't, you know, it's, it's what's out there in the culture. It's the real man script as right. opposed to the good man. Yeah, the real man and the and even some of the leader. If I'm going to be the leader, that means I get to be the boss, the bully, the authority over and get my way. That's my right as the leader and the man and the head where that's completely opposite from what God teaches. This concludes part one of Leslie's interview with Nancy Piercy. Join us next week where Nancy and Leslie will delve further into the topic of Nancy's latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. In the meantime, go to leslievernick.com for more resources. If this show was helpful, please subscribe and share, and we would love your honest rating and review. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with Him, with yourself, and with others.